Well, our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. If you have a Bible there in front of you, I invite you to turn there, Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you in the back of, the, of your bulletin. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Mark writes, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not him, but him who sent me. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, some of you, maybe some of you uh, are experienced airline travelers. Maybe you've flown so many times you couldn't begin to count them. And if you're an experienced flyer, you know, there are a number of things, even in our day, of, of things changing, uh, that a lot of things, are, when you fly a lot, become old hat to you. You know what to expect. You, you know what's the saying. You know the drill. Not your first rodeo. Insert whatever saying you can think of. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you come to expect at the airport? Um, maybe a long wait to get through security screenings. Maybe you're one of those lucky few that always gets singled out for the extra screening which is always fun. Uh, you, maybe once you're on the plane, since you've been there so many times, you know, sometimes if you've been there enough times, you could almost give the flight attendants you know, the, the little safety briefing they give you. You could probably mouth it as, she's do, as he or she is going through it and showing the little packet they unfold before you to tell you about your, your, your oxygen mask and the seat cushion being a flotation device. I think if my plane's in the water, the last thing I'm worried about is my seat being a flotation device. Um, you, know, you know when you have to remain seated. You know when it's okay to get up and walk around the cabin and use the restroom and things like that. Um, you, basically, one of the things you know is you, you finally come to know the telltale signs of when you're getting close to your destination, especially if you're in a hurry and can't get, wait, wait to get off the plane. You want to be able to turn your phone back on, call your ride, tell them you've You've gotten there. You kind of know what, what to expect. You know when certain things happen that you're almost there, even if you're not looking at your watch, even if it's dark outside. When, when you're getting close to where you're going, things start to change. What kind of things happen? Flight attendants start milling around the cabin taking care of last-minute preparations. If you're on a window seat near one of the wings of the aircraft, you might notice the flaps on the bottom starting to adjust. You might notice the plane starting to descend ever so slowly uh, from its cruising altitude. The seatbelt light often comes on. They tell you to fasten your seatbelts, to put the seat back up into its full, upright, and locked position. You can tell I've flown a few times. 
even though I'm a nervous, nervous flyer, you put the little, the little tray back up, put your, put your things away, put your, your games and your books and your headphones and things away. And usually the pilot will come on over the intercom and tell you uh, that uh, you are on the final approach for landing at your destination or, or at least the destination of your connecting flight. Well, that, that is a lot like what we're seeing here in these chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Not that they're flying, but we're, we're seeing the final approach. We're seeing the signs of the final approach uh, to, to Jerusalem. You know, much, much of what has previously been in the Gospel of Mark in the first eight chapters or so, it's kind of, uh, you know, they're going from one place to another. Jesus is teaching, doing miracles, you know, even casting out demons and raising the dead and, and all these things. It's kind of like when you're on a flight and you're at cruising altitude. Now, a lot of things happen, but... You know, it's kind of one thing after the other with no discernible, sometimes no discernible connection uh, uh, or sign of your, of your destination. But starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, when Jesus asks the, the disciples, you know, who do you say that I am and what does Peter say? You are the Christ, short and to the point. After starting with Peter's confession, things in the gospel of Mark, things begin to change in a very dramatic and noticeable fashion. From here on out, after Mark 8, 29, and Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, we start to see those telltale signs that our Lord Jesus Christ is on his final approach, that he has now set his face toward Jerusalem, and that is because he is traveling the way of the cross. He came to do all the things he did. We don't want to minimize the, the earthly ministry of Christ. We don't want to, we don't want to only talk about the cross. The, the rest of the things in the Gospels are there for a reason. That Jesus had to do all those things. Those were the works prepared before him by his Father for our salvation. All of his active obedience, all of his earthly ministry, all of his miracles, all of his teachings are vitally important, but they're not the main thing. The main thing in the Gospels and in the life of Christ is his death on the cross and his resurrection. Starting in, in, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, and he sets his face toward Jerusalem because, again, he's traveling the way of the cross. Now, if you think about that, that means that roughly half of Mark's gospel is, even, is either dealing with events leading up to or dealing with events directly related to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not an accident. That indicates for you and I that which is central and of first importance in the message of the gospel of Christ. It's very similar to the gospel of John. Approximately half of the gospel of John deals with the last week. It doesn't mean that the three years or whatever time it was that Jesus' earthly ministry took place, the, time that the rest of it wasn't important, but it's not central. His death and resurrection is central. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4, he said there that the message, quote, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He says there that that's what he delivered to the Corinthians as being of, quote, of first importance. It doesn't mean he neglected the rest. What it means is that was the main thing. If they were going to remember one thing, that those were the things, his death and resurrection according to the scriptures. So that's the focus here on out in the Gospel of Mark. That'll be our focus 
today and in coming Sundays all the way through the end of the book. And here, here from our short text, we're going to see at least three things here from this passage. We're going to see first the way of the cross, the way of the cross. The second thing we're going to see is the way of the world, the way of the world in contrast to the way of the cross. And finally, what Jesus says about the way of true greatness, what it means really to be first and the way of being first. Well, the first thing we see here in our text is the, it, it's pretty, pretty easy to overlook, I think, but it's the way of the cross, the way of the cross. Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples were on the move again, and he says in verse 30 that they passed through Galilee. You could also translate that maybe even better as passed by or passed around Galilee. Now, if, you have, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, the earlier chapters, and maybe if you've been here during the sermon series, you might remember that Galilee was the location of a great deal of Christ's earthly ministry up to this point. In some ways, you could almost say it's the hub of his activity, Galilee. It's where he called the disciples. It's where he did any number of things. He must have been very well known there. He was more well known there for what he had done up to this point in the gospel than he even was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem practically hadn't seen him yet, but Galilee, he had been there, had been there a lot. But what you see in our text here is that Jesus, although he's been there a lot, although he has a lot of, you know, you could say great memories there and great things he had done there, uh, he has no desire to go there and spend time there now. It's as if he's in a hurry. He knows, it even says there, he did not want, verse 30, he did not want anyone to know. Why didn't Jesus want anyone to know that they were passing through or passing around there? Because they would delay him. They would, certain people would be bringing up the sick, the, the, the ill, the demon-possessed, the suffering, and probably lining the streets with them. And he didn't want that to happen. Not that those people were unimportant, but they weren't, those things were not the center of his, of his mission and his ministry. He did not want to be delayed. He did not want to be kept from his destination, which, as we're going to see, involved the city of Jerusalem. If you read chapters 9 through 11, it's not very long. Don't do it right now, uh, but maybe when you get home this afternoon. If you read chapters 9 through 11, what you'll notice is, it's easy to not notice it as you're reading through it, but if you take the time to notice it, Mark starts pointing out the various cities they're passing through and going by, and he... The geographical references, he starts peppering those throughout the text. Again, we don't take note of those things. We think that they're kind of insignificant. But they start popping up in very rapid progression. And even in the Gospel of Mark, if you know Mark, his, his favorite word is the word immediately. He's, he's in a hurry. He's a gospel of action. Well, Mark's already shown things to be kind of moving along and in a hurry, but now it's, it's even more so. Now he is showing that Christ seems to be in a very big hurry to get where he is going, the way of Jerusalem, the way, the way of the cross. Even in our text here, we see he's passing through or passing around Galilee, verse 30. Verse 33, what, he's already somewhere else. It says he's arriving in where? Capernaum. He's going from one place to the other. Starting in, in Mark chapter 10, it starts off, Mark says, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom he taught them. So he's Galilee, Capernaum, to the region of Judea. So he's getting closer to Jerusalem than not long after that. In verse 17 of chapter 10, he says that Jesus was setting out on his journey. And verse 32 of chapter 10, Mark, in case we hadn't noticed 
the direction that Jesus was taking. If we don't have maybe the, the map in the back of your Bible open as you're reading, Mark spells it out in, in Mark 10.32. He says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. He spells it right out for people that are dense like me. Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. He mentions Jerusalem by name no less than six times from the end of chapter 10 through the end of chapter 11. Mark is making it very plain where Jesus had to go and hints very much at why he had to go there. Now, why, why is Jesus making a beeline towards Jerusalem? What's, what's the rush? What's the hurry? He sets his face like flint, to use Isaiah's phrase, towards Jerusalem. And the reason he has to go to Jerusalem is that's where the cross awaits him. He came above all things else. He came to die for our sins and to rise again. He's traveling the way of the cross. He mentions the message of the cross to the disciples. But even in the midst of that, Mark is painting a picture of Christ being on the way of, of the cross. Verses 30 to 32, you see here Jesus once again, you know, in chapters 8 and again in chapter 9 and again in chapter 10. Mark gives a summary statement of Jesus once again teaching his disciples about his suffering, his rejection, his death and resurrection. And in verse 31 of our chapter, or our text here is no different. He says there, Mark writes, for he was teaching his disciples, verse 31, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. So he's not just taking them on the journey to the cross where he's going to be lifted up from the earth and draw all men to himself where he's going to die in our place and three days later rise again on the way to that place he's telling them about it over and over and over again and as we see they have trouble understanding when Mark says in verse 31 he says Jesus was was teaching those things to his disciples he's using if I can be grammatical here for a second in the Greek he's using the imperfect tense of that verb to teach and what that means is and it's translated well there by the ESV, this wasn't something he said once. This was an ongoing thing he was teaching them. We don't know, you know how long it took or how many times he mentioned it, but this was the ongoing topic of conversation and teaching on this journey to the cross. He's, what's he doing? He's preparing them for what is to come. He doesn't want them to miss what is to come, where they're going, where he is going, and why he is going there. He doesn't want them to be surprised at what is to come, what is to happen to him, especially his rejection and crucifixion. And that leads us to our second point, and that is the way of the world. The way of the cross is one thing. The way of the world is often rather different. Once again, we see a common theme in the Gospel of Mark. We see the disciples not understanding. We see the disciples having trouble understanding. Verse 32, Mark says, But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand about the death and resurrection that Jesus kept telling them about. Now, what, what does Mark say there? That they were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid to ask him? You ever been afraid to ask a question? When I was in seminary, I was afraid to ask a question multiple times because I didn't want to look dumb. I didn't want to seem as if I weren't paying attention or hadn't done the reading. Right? So was it simple embarrassment? Were they just slow and didn't want to admit it to the other guys that they were a little bit slow once again? That might have been, been part of it. It certainly can be embarrassing to ask a question, especially when you've been taught, as we've seen, something over and over and over again. 
Jesus is much more patient than, than I know than I tend to be. When if I taught somebody something over and over again and they didn't get it, they would know that I was exasperated. We, we don't know if Jesus showed anything like that uh, at, their, at their misunderstanding and lack of understanding, but he probably did not. Um, but Mark gives us a pretty good idea of why they were afraid to ask, doesn't he? Look at verses 33 to 37. It says, And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, so they had a break from their travels, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Muhammad Ali had not been born yet, right? And he sat down and, and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, you know, whoever wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Really saying, not just me, but him who, who sent me. So what were they talking about on the way? What, what's the real reason they didn't want to ask Jesus about what he was talking about? And why didn't he want to answer their question? He says they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Pretty remarkable to think of the subject he was teaching them and what they were thinking about the entire time. I think if we're honest, uh, we've all been there ourselves as far as daydreaming and not paying attention when someone is... Not that anyone's doing that right now. Everybody's paying attention right now, right? Uh, But they've been arguing about who is going to be the greatest. Their thoughts, while Jesus was talking about his own rejection, his own opposite of glory, his own suffering, his own death... By, at the hands of his own people that he came to save and his resurrection, they were preoccupied with thoughts of personal attainment and glory to the, such a degree that they were unable to hear and understand what Jesus had been repeatedly and plainly telling them about his approaching cross and resurrection. They had been afraid to ask him what he meant when he spoke of his death and resurrection, and now they were afraid to answer him when he asked what they were talking about on the way. But you know, Jesus, a lot of times, his, his questions tend to be rhetorical, don't they? Did Jesus not know what they were talking about on the way? Jesus always seems to know, doesn't he? Matthew chapter 20, there in verses 25 to 28, Jesus has the following to say about the way of the world, about the world's view, the, the, the wrong view of, of greatness. And this is what he writes, Matthew 20, or what he says, Matthew 20 Verses 25 to 28, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And what does he say there? It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That last sentence, that last phrase, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That, is one of, that should be one of the most mind-boggling verses in all of Scripture to us. The Son of Man, the Lord of glory, the one who has every right to be served, the one who, the only one who has every right to expect to be served, to be waited on hand and foot, to be worshipped, adored, and glorified, he came as a man to do what? 
the exact opposite of that. He came to serve, and who did he come to serve? Sinners, like you and like me. He came to serve and came to give his life as a ransom, to lay down his life for those who are undeserving. Now, when when Jesus there speaks of the rulers of the Gentiles, he's kind of referring in a way by saying that he's talking about those who didn't know the Lord, those who were pagans, those who were heathen, to use the old King James favorite word. They were heathen, they were pagans who didn't know the one true and living God. It's much like the way we, we use the word worldly now. We'd say that so-and-so, they're of the world, they don't know the Lord. Well, this, the people that don't know the Lord, how do they treat greatness? He says they lord it over those they rule over. They exercise their authority over them. The way of the world when it comes to greatness and authority is to lord one's authority over others, to, to lord one's importance, maybe one's possessions even, over other people. So what's the, what does that mean? It means the world's definition of greatness and authority is essentially a self-seeking, self-oriented, and self-absorbed way of looking at life. It's all about you. It's all about me. That's how the world views greatness. Now, authority is not the issue. That's, Jesus isn't saying authority is bad and nobody should have authority. It's not what he's saying at all. Authority is not the issue, but the right view of authority, the right way of exercising authority, the right attitude and motivation for exercising that authority is the issue. Authority is not to be exercised first and foremost for the benefit of the one who bears that authority, but rather for other people. The only one who has the right to exercise authority for his own benefit is the Lord himself, and he exactly did not do that. Even right now, talking about this being Ascension Sunday... Now, Christ rules over all, thing for, all things for his glory right now, but whose benefit does he rule over all things for right now? Until, until he comes again. Us, his people, his church. So authority is to be exercised first and foremost for the benefit of others, not for the one who bears that authority. The few couple examples, the Christian view of marriage. The Christian view, the biblical view of marriage is a good example of this. Ephesians 5 Verses 22 to 24, you know, that's the passage where pastors, where eagles dare, you know, where pastors are afraid to talk about. The Apostle Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the what? The head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He's not being unclear here. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then Paul stops right there, right? Goes on to the next chapter. No, verse, verse 23, what does he say there? The husband is the head of the wife. Twice in those three verses he mentions the wife is to submit to her husband's authority, even as, what's the model? Christ submit, uh, the church submits to Christ himself. But then what does he say about the husband? He talks more about the husband's part than he does the wife's part, doesn't he? The wife's part's short to the point. The husband's part, it's like he knows we're a little slow and he has to drag it out a little bit. He says, husbands, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. As, as the wife is supposed to submit to the, her husband, as, as the church says to Christ, the other way goes around too. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. Laid down his life for his church. So the husband's authority is real but he is to exercise it for his wife's good, for her benefit and not his own. It is not a self-serving authority, or it is not to be such. 
Another example of this is his office in the church. God's officers in Christ's church today. The same is true for that kind of authority as well. The Apostle Peter, we know from his own letters, finally learned the lesson that Christ teaches in our text by the grace of God. He learned that lesson and he passed that lesson off along in his first epistle. In 1 Peter 5, verses 2 to 4, listen to the words that Peter gives to his fellow elders. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not, here it is, not domineering over those in your charge, but being what? Examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He doesn't say, hey, this is, you know, we're all equal here. There's no authority. There's no structure. He says, shepherd God's flock. Care for them, lead them, guide them, teach them. Exercise oversight, he says. We don't, we don't like authority and things in our day, but he doesn't shy away from that at all. It, you know, authority, oversight, uh, the, those things are part and parcel of the job as an officer in God's church. It's hard work. It's sometimes, sadly, it can be thankless work. Uh, but how are elders to do that work? What does Peter say? Not under compulsion. Not unwillingly, right? What will, do it willingly as God would have you. Not just willingly, but he says not, verse, verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge but rather being examples to the flock. In other words, what's another way of saying that? If you're an elder or a deacon also, the flock is not there for your benefit. It, you're the, it's quite the, the reverse, isn't it? Officers in the church are there for the benefit of the flock, of the, of the church. You know, an officer of the church, an elder doesn't come with a crown to wear in this life. Yesterday, the speaker at Dan's graduation uh, jokingly pulled out a presidential medallion. It was huge. It was humongous. And it, you could put it around his neck and he joked around about having superpowers and abilities and things. Uh, you know, we don't get a crown. Elders, pastors, deacons, we don't get crowns in this life. They would fade anyway. Uh, but what does it say? Those who serve well as elders will receive, what does he say, the unfading crown of glory when the chief shepherd appears. So what's the pattern? Service and humility now, glory Later, the cross comes before the crown, suffering comes before glory. What about deacons? We won't spend a lot of time on this, but the, sometimes the neglected office of the church. Even the word itself, the Greek word for deacon, is expressive of service. The word for deacon means servant. In Acts chapter 6, verse 2, it has the idea, uh, the idea is that of serving tables. Think about it you know, like, a, like a waiter or a busboy at a restaurant doesn't mean there's not dignity and authority in that office, but that it, it pictures service, not, not glory. Service and humility now, glory later. Those offices of, of elder and deacon are invested with authority and they are invested with honor. We should honor those who serve in those offices and submit to them uh, for our good and for their, for their joy, but they are primarily positions of service to others. Elders and deacons are there to serve God's flock for the well-being of God's flock and not the other way around. Well, that brings us to our third and our final point, the way of true greatness in God's kingdom. What is the way of true greatness in God's kingdom? Jesus, what does he do here? Jesus gives us 
through the disciples here, kind of a lesson on true greatness and what it means, what it really means to be first. He says in verse 35, if anyone would be first, if anybody would be number one, he must be last of all and servant of all. The way to be first or greatest is the way of humility and service. After all, that's the very way of Christ himself, isn't it? It's the way of the Lord Jesus himself. And are we greater than he? No, we certainly are not. As Jesus himself told his disciples in John 15, 20, he said a servant is what? Not greater than his master. For following Christ, we'll do the things that Christ did and serve the way that Christ did. Could there be anything more counterintuitive to the world's way of thinking than that? More contrary to the unbelieving world's way of thinking about greatness than what Jesus says here. The world is always telling us to look out for number one. Right? People still say that anymore, but look out for number one because nobody else is going to do it for you. Everybody's, it's a dog-eat-dog world, they say. Well, the Lord of glory, who actually is number one, came as a servant and laid down his life for sinners like us. Sinners like us who were inherently self-absorbed, self-centered, in more ways than we probably care to admit. And then look at verses 36 to 37. Mark says, And he took a child, presumably a rather young child, it says he took a child and put him in the midst of them. He put them, the child right in the middle of all of them. No, no, no mistaking where he wanted their eyes. Here, look at this. Put him in the middle, uh, in the midst of them. And it says, And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus takes a little child, we don't know how old that he was, and he basically hugs the child. When it says, took him in his arms, it has the idea of being embraced. We shouldn't be ashamed to say that. Jesus hugged this child in front of the whole group and said, Let the, you know, he shows them what greatness looks like by doing that. Not only are children great in God's kingdom, but the great ones in God's kingdom make time for children. Jesus himself certainly did. A child is also, you know, a picture of need in many ways, a young child anyway. It's often a picture of need, someone who really can't fend for themselves, can't take care of themselves. Someone, it's, it's, it's a picture of, you know, maybe cuteness, but it's a picture of need as well. So we must receive or welcome little ones in Christ's name. We must never come to see ourselves as somehow being too important or too busy for them. Jesus himself said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs what? The kingdom of God. That's an amazing thing for him to say, Matthew 19, 14. You know, Jesus is in a big hurry right here, right? He doesn't want to stop in Galilee. He doesn't want anything slowing him down. So it's remarkable for us to think that in the midst of this hurry, as, as much of a hurry as Jesus is in to get to Jerusalem and the cross. Believe me, that wouldn't be the thing I'd be hurrying to do. But what does he take the time to do? In the midst of all that, besides teach the, the, the disciples, he takes the time to embrace a child in the midst of all of them. To slow everything down and say, look, you want to see greatness? This is what greatness looks like. Self-forgetting service and taking care of those who, who are in need, those who can't fend for themselves. And I, I submit this, you know, it's easy to be hard on the disciples, it's easy to, to be a little hard on Peter, 
He's the one that's always uh, the spokesman putting his foot in his mouth in the Gospels. But are we not a lot like those disciples on the way? Are Are we not a lot more like them than we think? Are we not sometimes slow to understand? Are we not at times afraid to ask and always kind of seeking, even in the back of our heads, our own glory when we should be seeking the glory of Christ and serving others? Are we not tempted to minimize the way of the cross and the message of the cross in what we do as individuals and as a church? Are we not tempted to seek greatness according to the ways of the world rather than the ways of Christ? J.C. Ryle writes this, Flesh and blood can see no other way to greatness than crowns and rank and wealth and high position in the world. The Son of God declares that the way lies in devoting ourselves to the care of the weakest and lowest of his flock. That's what greatness looks like. That's not the way we, we, we naturally, I don't, we naturally don't think that way. We think of prominence, we think of people noticing us, we think of position and authority. Well, may the Lord Jesus Christ in his grace and by the work of his spirit within us, may he grant that you and I might be a people known for seeking the glory of Christ and not our own glory. And that we might be seeking greatness not through our own attainments and things, but that we might seek real greatness by serving other people both inside and outside the church of Christ. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the example and the teaching of, of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that, that uh, even as amazing as it seems to us that, that he came to, to, to give his life as a ransom for many and he was in a hurry to accomplish it when the time came, that he did not delay as Abraham got up early in the morning the day that he was to sacrifice his son Isaac, that he, he got up super early and went up the mountain even though you held his hand and provided the ram in a thicket, that even so Jesus Christ himself was in a hurry and would let nothing delay him from accomplishing the salvation of sinners like us, the, the salvation of his church. And we thank you for what he taught about the centrality of his cross and his resurrection for our salvation, for our redemption and justification in that. And we thank you for what he teaches us even here, models for us and teaches us about what it means to look after true greatness in this world, to be first in your kingdom. Give us grace, give us humility, forgive us for the ways that we seek our own glory, to seek our own benefit at the expense of those we should be serving. Uh, Form us, make, make us a people who are characterized by serving each other and serving those who can't serve themselves. Make us not a self-serving church, but a a church that serves others in the name of Christ. Give us grace to receive even one such child as that in the name of Christ. And so receive not even just Christ, but you, the one who sent him for our salvation. We do pray that if anybody here yet does not know you, that you might even be pleased to, to open their eyes today. They might look and see their sin, their need for Christ, and look to Christ and have salvation in his name, we thank you for all these things and thank you for your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.